and we're recording. Hey, TJ, how's it going? It's going really well, man. I've had a good week. Just before the show started, you were telling me that you just heard the heartbeat? Yep, heard the heartbeat. It was running at 159 beats per minute, which I heard was a pretty average for a little person. Little athlete in there. That's awesome, that's, man. That's it's that's precious. Little, that's right. It's a little athlete. Um, I had uh, one of my coworkers came up to me today after I told them, and he said that his mother-in-law said that a high heartbeat means that you have a girl, and then he said, "Well, she's wrong though, because I'm having a boy, and it was the exact same." <laughs> so we'll see what happens. But I'm super excited, man. It's going to be a good time. Uh, before we had kids. Uh, Megan and I were playing the Sims on the computer and there's a, a cheat code that you can do where you can force it to your next child to be a boy. And so I think you go in the backyard and you either bury an apple or you plant one or you do something with an apple in the backyard of your Sims house. And that's what decides if it's, it's going to be a boy or not. So um, that's just you know an extra uh, little fact you have in your toolbox now. Well, I'm going to have to go and uh, bury an apple or something. Cause that, I mean, I, I'm honestly fine with either way, but me and Jenny have been placing bets. I think it's going to be a boy. She thinks it's going to be a girl, but, you know, see how it plays out. No, it's, I'll it's, go it's bury an apple. no matter what. Oh, yeah, most definitely. I really am just concerned that the baby's happy, which we found out that um, she had the test done. And there's only like a 1 in 10,000 chance the kid has Down syndrome, which is, you know, pretty real, pretty low. You know, basically non-existent is what they told us. So we're happy, man. All's good. Excellent. Well, I'm, I'm hoping you have a, a healthy little baby. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. So, um, I've had some thoughts the past few days about okay. um, web browsers. I kind of want to talk to you about them. I kind of want to get your thoughts um, about different stuff. But I, I, I read an article the other day about how Google is starting to hide the URL of websites inside of mm -hmm. search results now. Um, and almost making it so that they expect people to, instead of, you know, typing in web addresses to go to websites, mm -hmm. instead of like the address bar being the, you know, point to go from one place to another, they expect you to start using Google now to like, you know, search for something and not even showing you the address bar, just show you like the name of the website, um, instead of, you know, the actual URL, um, kind of reminded me of the AOL days. <laughs> you had keywords, um, yeah. you had AOL. No, I remember that. I'm all for this. Uh, what's that? I'm all for this this move. Really? Oh yeah. Okay, I want I I disagree with you here, and I want to hear your thoughts as to why. Okay, um, if I tell Grandma I want her to go to my website, then I have to tell her the address: https colon slash slash www.cowherd.dev, and then she says, "Okay, cowherd.com." It's like, nope, that's not it, Grandma. And then I keep going through it, and then, you know, is it forward slash or backslash? Why, you know, HTTPS, what is, okay, forget all that. Don't type that. Just type in cowherd.dev. And, you know, eventually it gets to the point where if she just Googled it, she would have found it. So I, especially for things over the phone, I think this is a great move. And, you know, it'll always be there. There will always be a way that you can type in the full address, but we don't really care as long as we know that it's legit, it's secure, it's not a phishing site. Um, I don't think we need to see the addresses unless we really want to. 
So here's my problem with it. I get that from a usability standpoint, it does make sense to show just the name of the site as opposed to showing the, um, the address. But my problem is that you end up in a situation similar to how we had in the AOL days where you almost kind of have this walled garden instead of there being, you know, an open web that no company is in charge of. Now it's kind of like you have this large monolithic company who is kind of like the gatekeeper, if you will. I think this started, what are your thoughts? well, it didn't start, but this has been around, especially with things like um, I'm feeling lucky on Google search, which has been there forever. And then we have things like Alexa. I'm sorry, everybody, if I just triggered your, your echo. Um, we have things like Dingus who you will ask a question and they will do a search and then read you, read to you the, you know, the top result. And it's not letting you pick which website It's just trying to pick the best one for you. And that's what these, these search engines are going to start doing. We're going to start treating this as like an app store or, a, a, you know, a, a dictionary or an encyclopedia unless like, um, you know, a bunch of phone numbers in there. Like, well, for example, on your phone, you don't know people's phone numbers anymore. You just know the name and the context and it's able to get it for you. So I think the, the web address is kind of going that route. Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, like I, I see where you're coming from from a usability standpoint. My, my thing is that w when is it going to... So I, I don't usually want to bring up politics on this this podcast at all, and I'm not picking a side either way, but I feel like it gets dangerous when you may have a, a minority political party or one that a company large enough, such as Facebook or Google, doesn't necessarily agree with where they could start hiding results. They could start just obfuscating things that they shouldn't instead of being just completely. I mean, they could do this now where they could start filtering stuff out. But I, I feel like it's, it's almost a fine line, if you will, as opposed to just being a dumb search engine that just has a crawler. It's almost like now you have this this intermediary that gets to decide what it does and doesn't show. That's what I'm concerned with. I guess that will always be there. And because mm -hmm. it's open, you can always use a different search engine. But right now you don't really, if I search for, you know, pumpkin pie recipe and um, I don't even, I'm not familiar enough with the, about this topic to have a good analogy, but let's just say like big pumpkin, you know, some giant pumpkin um, company um, is all over the top of the, of the results. I'm never going to see, you know, grandma Jones pumpkin recipe, that would normally be, you know, farther down the page, but we, we have that problem now. I, I'm not sure that hiding the address will affect that. I think, um, True. the, the quality content will go to the top or, you know, and if it's being suppressed because of, of political or a minority status or something, there's always other engines, you know, Facebook does this right now too. If, you know, the, the Facebook newsfeed doesn't necessarily give you addresses for all of the posts. True. True, but I think that when you, at least I do as a as a you know power user, if you will, understand that there is nothing that I do on Facebook that is in my control. Like that is all, like that is their section of the internet, and we know that they do a whole lot of hackery. They've done hackery for as long as they've been around, and so I don't expect that. I I think I've just expected more from Google, um, but I I, I guess not. You know, um. 
I, I think trusting Google to be the protectors of a free and open web is probably naive. I well, so Google has is now an advertisement company, and they've been for a while. I think it's more dangerous um, if Google has the browser and they prevent you from doing things like an ad blocker or something like that and injecting ads and tracking you. I think that's way worse than just hiding web addresses on a on a search results. As long as, you know, well, I see your point. If they're if they're suppressing specific results based on, you know, financial reasons or political reasons or something, that's terrible. I I, I have no arguments for that. But I, I do, uh, or I do feel a little bit nervous that we give them a lot of power if they have the full stack from the browser all the way down to the results I'm seeing. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So the reason why I brought this up is that I ended up because um, I've told you that I've I've been looking at different email services, mm-hmm. which I actually haven't switched over from Gmail, um, but I did end up switching for for search engines from Google to DuckDuckGo, mm-hmm. um, and this past week i have made another jump where i realized that you know after reading these articles and thinking these things through realized this didn't really make any sense for me to switch these things over but i was still using google's own browser right um and i downloaded firefox for the first time Mm -hmm. and and man this uh this browser has gotten really nice Not, Um, not the first time ever right just the first time recently yes i mean uh let me let me restate that um it's not the first time ever, but the first version of Firefox that I used, I think was Firefox three oh, okay. and the version of Firefox that I downloaded was Firefox 70. Yeah. So it, it, I probably downloaded here and there a few times just to test like website, you know, development stuff. But this is the first time I've used it and actually like set it up as my main browser of choice. I mean, it's been a long time, um, but it, it's gotten very, very nice. I've got to say like it, Mozilla definitely prides themselves as being, protectors of the open web um and and setting up the browser for the first time you know it asks if you want to set up you know do not track um responses and um a a lot of protect like privacy protection controls and whatnot um it's pretty slick not to mention like they've got like password managers and um file sharing tools as well that you know encrypt your your file and you know the actual download is encrypted all all this stuff um their their suite of tools has gotten really nice. I feel like Firefox or Mozilla. That's kind of like they're, they're having to start do things. They have to start doing things like Opera and offering VPNs and some of these these alternative technologies to try to get users because traditionally they've been paid by Google by just you know giving Google the default search results. Um, in their browser. So, you know, I think Google ended up paying them, you know, many, many millions a year just to have that uh, default search engine in there. And I don't know if that recently changed to Bing or, or something, but I, I do know that they had a shakeup and, uh, and it's interesting seeing them become a little scrappy and, and jumping all over the place. It's, it's pretty fun to watch, but, you know, we definitely need competition. I, I feel like we're going to get to a point where the browsers are going to, there's going to be so few of them and they, they're all giant monopolies, just like our United States uh, cell phone carriers. You're going to get down to like two or three. And I have, um, I did a little bit of research on the history of browsers and I'm kind of seeing this pattern of everything coming down to just, you know, powered by two or three technologies. So, so can you tell me, tell me a little bit more about that? Like, I'm, I'm curious to hear more about like the life cycle, if you will, 
of you know these browsers because i i remember like the first browser that i ever used i believe was internet explorer 6 oh my gosh um, okay okay yeah and I, I from there i remember then firefox 3 and you know using you know switching back and forth between internet explorer and firefox you know as i was using windows and linux and then i remember chrome came around and then that was just the default that was just what i used okay so i'm going to give you a little bit of history um the first browser was written by Tim Berners-Lee. It was called World Wide Web. It was written on a Next machine, and um, it, it was very limited. It, it, it could just run on that, that very small environment. You couldn't even download pictures. All you could do is have text, and if what, what he did was he created the links, and that was the first time that we had had that. I mean, we had had stuff similar, but this is the, you know, the, the jumping off point. And then in, in 1992, there was a... Uh, there, there was a, um, a group at the University, University of Illinois called the, the National Center for Supercomputing Super Applications, or the NCSA. That, uh, that group started the browser Mosaic, and Mosaic is like the grandfather of all browsers. If you ever, if, as a developer, if you ever look at like the user agent, um, whenever you're, you, if, if you're getting a request from, from a, a user, and, and you look at the headers and you see the user agent, you're going to see what looks like every single browser name ever because it's trying to be compatible with all of these browsers, but you will probably always see Mosaic in there. So Mosaic has a, has a cool history. But in 1991, um, Al Gore, our former former U.S. vice president, um, passed, or proposed and then Congress eventually passed uh, the High Performance Computing Act, which funded the NCSA at University of Illinois. So Al Gore was, was influential into getting funding to that group of people to create uh, the first browser. Mosaic had images. That was one of the first. But at this point, it didn't have things like SSL and, and these other things that we, other technologies we needed, needed to really take off. Like we couldn't do online shopping today if we didn't have some secure way of passing data back and forth. And that didn't happen until Netscape got into the picture. And so the the lead developer, real yep, real quick, I've I've got a comment that I got to make. So you, you mentioned former Vice President Al Gore with the High Performance Computing Act on December 9th, nineteen ninety one. Yep, it is that the thing that he was referencing to when in a debate with George W. Bush, he said he he said that he created the internet. I'm assuming that's what he was referring to. Yeah, that's uh, that's where he gets that that argument or that defense from is um, proposing that bill yep i had never heard about that that's fascinating really fascinating what's it gets even crazier it's like a soap opera because the lead developer at mosaic which was funded by this ends up his name was mark anderson he ends up leaving mosaic and starting netscape and mosaic um it was run by the school but or run, run by the, the organization the ncsa but they ended up licensing the source code to several companies. One of the companies was a company called Spyglass and Spyglass relicensed the software to Microsoft and Microsoft created Internet Explorer 1.0. So Mosaic is out and the lead developer leaves and goes and starts Netscape. And then the Mosaic code gets licensed and and is pushed over to Microsoft. And then there was this giant war for like, I don't know, five or six years from like 90, like early nineties to like 97, 98. 
Netscape was dominating. They had a huge market share, like over 80%, maybe up to like 90%. And then Microsoft, uh, they did something a little, I don't know if unethical is the right word, but they had a, um, they almost had to split their company and they had a lot of legal trouble for this. And this is kind of uh, what eventually led to the new Microsoft we see today. It all started back at this moment. Um, Microsoft bundled Internet Explorer with Windows 95 and completely killed Netscape. So prior to this, you'd have to go to the store and buy Netscape on, on CD. And I remember um, when I was young, we we would do that. We would buy like Netscape Communicator or something. And it, we, we bought it on CD or maybe it was floppy disk and we bring it home and install it. But this is back in the day when you would get uh, AOL CDs mailed to you. So it's just, just fascinating that all the stuff happened around the same time. But that's crazy. I, I thought that Netscape was open source from the beginning, but I guess not. So, so again, yep. I'm with you. So Netscape, it's funny. Um, Netscape ended up in 1998. They knew they were going to lose or they, they knew they were on the down and they were running out of money and it was expensive to run it. So they open sourced their code and then started the Mozilla Foundation or organization. And Mozilla was jokingly, jokingly known internally as a mosaic killer. So Mozilla. So anyway, that's where they, they kind of get the name from. Mm-hmm. But uh, in so this was in 1998. Mo, Netscape open sources their code, starts Mozilla. In 1999, um, a guy named Lars Knoll starts working on the KHTML browser. And this is an open source browser for Linux. Um, it was used with, with KDE uh, primarily. But KHTML, mm-hmm. you're, you're going to hear about later, that's influential to what we're currently using. That, that was a, a, a giant uh, catalyst into the future. And that happened in... in... And interestingly, oh, sorry, interestingly enough, when I, um, per last episode, when I was using SUSE Linux 9.3 back in like 2005... Um, KDE's browser was called Conqueror. Yes. And that was that was using KHTML as its internal engine, and it used it for, for quite a while. And if you remember back in those days, the rendering on it was garbage. You you would go to a mm-hmm. website, and it would not run or not render correctly. But if you viewed it in Internet Explorer, it was great. Um, Internet Explorer, because they were so dominant, they were able to um, – they didn't have to follow the standards – and they could create their own standards and they could even make, you know, really cool stuff like Internet Explorer helped us create or I think they created what turned into Ajax, which is the technology we use now to make, in, you know, all of this, these cool web applications. Like one of the original or one of the early, really famous ones was Google Maps. And prior to, you know, using Ajax and, and Google doing that work, we had MapQuest and MapQuest was, you know, you would click and it would refresh the page and you'd see the tiles for the map shift over. But with Google Maps, it was just an infinite canvas you could drag with your mouse. We had never seen anything like that before. But Ajax and and the, the technologies for that were created by Internet Explorer or by that team, as well as things like, uh, I think it was ActiveX, I believe, was a way that you could embed mm-hmm. you know better Windows uh, binaries into your web page, which you can see that later on we, we've recreated the wheel and we have you know, other versions of that. But back in those days, Internet Explorer was really, really powerful, but it was totally locked into Microsoft. And if you you know tried to build a website and you want to run with just the standards, your pages wouldn't run. So everybody tried to 
make their web pages look and work good with Internet Explorer. And so that, that stunted our growth for a little while. And I think that might happen uh, or might be starting to happen again. And I'll go, go into that in a little bit. And, and, you know, one of the things, the technologies that was released around the same time, maybe a little bit earlier before, was Adobe Flash. Yes. Um, and the cool thing about Flash was that it was kind of like, you know, we, programmers have always been fascinated with the idea that we write something one time and it works everywhere. Um, and the cool thing about Flash was that you could write essentially a little Flash plugin. You could write the entirety of your website in a little Flash application. And it pretty much worked the same way across all browsers because you had to install like Adobe's Flash plugin and it would all render the same way. And so you can make these crazy, very, very, very dynamic um, websites. But the problem there was, there was like a lot of security issues with it from what Flash I recall. Flash was so cool. So Flash gave me a, a way that I could create or design an animation or a cool layout that I could run on every browser that supported Flash. And I knew or I knew that it would run the same in all of them. So it was like PDFs at the time. I was guaranteed that it would render correctly, but you know, normal HTML was not going to render correctly or might not. So that was a, a really cool, really cool period when we had Flash, but it used a ton of battery. Oh yeah, it was a resource. So log. after Lars creates the KHTML browser or starts working on it, um, Netscape was purchased by AOL. So AOL bought Netscape, but this is after they already open sourced the code and Mozilla um, started. So they basically just have the name. And uh, this was in, uh, I think this is like early 2000, I believe. And then in 2001, mm -hmm. uh, Microsoft releases Internet Explorer 6. And that's the one that you're remembering. IE6 was huge because it was embedded with Windows XP. And this is a big turning point for Microsoft. So prior to this, Microsoft could be releasing a new browser version every two months. But when IE6 came out, they started bundling the updates with the operating system. And we're currently seeing this with things like Mac OS and you know, iOS, where you don't get new versions of Safari until there's a new uh, version of the operating system. So I'm, it's interesting seeing this, this cycle uh, repeat. But during that period when Windows XP was uh, was launched, Microsoft Microsoft had all these plans to create the next version of, of Windows, and they were going to call it Windows Longhorn, and it, it was oh, yeah, it was delayed this. a lot. So typically, Microsoft releases a new operating system every you know three to five years, but uh, Longhorn was taking longer, and they ended up having to cut a bunch of really core pieces from it. But during that period of stagnation, and because they had won the browser war. They, you know, had the, the mass majority um, of, of users. They weren't innovating it very much. You know, very little change in IE6 for several years. And this uh, this vacuum and the fact that Mozilla had open sourced their code had given you know, other smaller players a chance to, uh, to catch up. And so we start seeing some interesting stuff happen during Windows XP. However, we still had the problem where uh, developers and, and uh, webmasters and, and web developers were creating websites that were designed for IE6. So it was this, this, this weird puberty stage of the browser. And then in uh, 2002, so a year after uh, XP is released, Mike, uh, Mozilla rewrites their browser. So they had the source code from, um, from Netscape, but Netscape was 
uh, over time it had to bundle and do things for different platforms and there were a lot of asks on it so the code wasn't as as pure as they would want so they ended up rewriting it and they made a new browser called phoenix and it was supposed to be like you know phoenix is rising rising from the ashes and i remember installing phoenix on my machine back in college and in i think it was high school and college and uh, that was fun and then like shortly after they they keep changing names they they i think they got sued or they had uh, issues with the phoenix bios group and had to rename so they renamed it to firebird and then there was another group uh, called firebird and they rename again to firefox and i remember firefox uh um, i would install it and i i remember having um problems rendering pages similar to how i had them you know render incorrectly with khtml so I think it's still 2002. I'm still using Internet Explorer, but you know, you want to be the guy who uses Firefox, but the pages just just don't render right. And then in 2003, like a year later, Apple releases Safari with uh, macOS Panther. And I read a book recently. It was called Creative Selection, and it talked. It's the engineer at Apple who's tasked with creating the new uh, the new browser. And it's interesting just reading the story. So. That's not my pick of the week, but it should be uh, creative selection. But uh, yeah, in 2003, Apple releases Safari, but its core, the, the core of the, the uh, browser is built off of KHTML from, from Lars back in 1999. So it's interesting seeing that Safari embraced KHTML and then they, they forked it and they renamed it to WebKit. And you will hear about WebKit. We're still using WebKit today. But that that big change happened when when Apple uh, used the KHTML code. So it's just fascinating. Uh, a couple years later, Google releases Chrome. Its core is also WebKit. So now Google and Apple are both working, or they have engineers assigned to the WebKit team, and they're working on this together. So this is this is huge for um, for web development. We're, we're finally getting multiple browsers that are all standards-based, that are all contributing to the same um, the same code base. And then Google starts making some cool innovations. They do stuff like the V8 engine, which later uh, powers a, a technology called Node.js uh, on the server side. Um, they do multi-threading. So you're able to have different web pages and different tabs loaded in different threads. So if one web page crashes, it doesn't take you know every one of your tabs down. So a lot of innovation starts happening. Um, and then around 2007, 2008, um, the iPhone and Android start uh, becoming a thing. And you know, Steve Jobs famously says, you know, no, no more Flash. And at that point, uh, and Steve Jobs also says he wants everyone, everyone, everybody to write web applications for the phone and not native applications. So he, you know, he, at that point, he was seeing the WebKit and this these web technologies were getting powerful enough that you could, you know, write applications with them. There, uh, the other stuff happening from Google and you know, the speed increases. We just see a lot of innovation happen in in the late uh, aughts. And then recently, uh, Microsoft releases Windows 10. I think it was Windows 10 and maybe Windows 8. Uh, they released uh, the Edge browser to replace IE. And then recently, and what really got me excited was. In, I think it's in early 2020, Microsoft is releasing a new version of the Edge browser, but it's powered by Chrome now, and which its roots will go back to KHTML. So in 2020, you're going to see 
Opera, Microsoft Edge, Google Chrome, Apple Safari, you know, all the browsers on iOS and a lot of them on Android, all powered by KHTML or the descendants of KHTML. What you're not going to see there is Firefox. Firefox is still using their own engine. So we, we still have most of the internet using one, um, one core type of, of uh, rendering technology and then Netscape's or, uh, uh, Mozilla or Firefox. They're using a different one. So back in 1998, whenever uh, Internet Explorer 6 was, or I'm sorry, Internet Explorer 6 was 2001. So 98 to 2001, um, during that period when Microsoft was taking over, we're seeing WebKit or KHTML do that now. And then Netscape is, is still the underdog. So just neat seeing that, that full cycle. It's it's funny how, yeah, it's just, it's just funny to see how it's just such a circular pattern of one browser dominating and having the underdog. And it's just kind of always been that way, you know? I kind of doubt that it'll ever change. It's like these same groups of people just keep, you know, merging and then splitting and merging and forking. And, and uh, yeah, it reminds me of those, um, you know, Verizon, AT&T, AT&T and T-Mobile, how they, you know, keep switching stuff back and forth. Interesting fact, though, AOL is owned by, and Netscape are owned by Verizon. So eventually uh, AT&T will, or Verizon will own everything. True, (laughs) and we both know that they are not protectors of a free no they each want their own but uh yep i had a browser that i really liked i think i need to look it up but it was called neo planet and this is like it's around the time of ie6 but ie6 was ugly so i got neo planet and it let you skin it the engine might have been ie6 i don't even remember but uh, I, we'll put a picture in the show notes. But this browser was, I just thought I was the, the coolest kid in school with this. Yeah, it was skinned. It was like, it was super skinned. It had like this chrome look with real, really cool bubble uh, buttons that, you know, skeuomorphic and just like this over overly done designed bookmarks area. It just looked really cool to me. But um, yeah, I remember at the time, like the, the browsers were, it, it was big you know, lots of competition, um, lots of browsers and stuff, but the, I think the cores were pretty much, you know, Mosaic or Mozilla slash uh, Netscape based or Internet Explorer skin stuff. Well, what stories do you have from early browsers? Well, real quick, um, fun fact, you can still go to neoplanet.com. Really? And um, see their website. Neo, yeah. Neoplanet.com. I'm going to put this in the show notes. Um, the last, the latest copyright download. is 2001. Um, and the download Neopla- button still I can works. Download it. Wow. Can't run it, but I can download it. Yeah. It's awesome. So it is a Trident based engine, which is what mm-hmm. Internet Explorer used from, I believe, Internet Explorer 4 through okay. 8, something like that. Um, so it is definitely essential, uh, you know, just you it's using internet internet explore technology um but yeah so back (laughs) back when this was popular it was it was very common to see uh someone start up you know visual basic or you know any of the 
what would turn into Visual Studio tools on Windows and use the basic web view controller or whatever they called it, and then create a browser around it. And we see that today happen on iOS. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned Firefox earlier. Um, I downloaded the Firefox uh, browser on the phone, on, I- on the iPhone, and it's powered by the same browser that um, Apple uses. It's powered by WebKit. So it's interesting seeing that it's still happening today. Like other people are rebranding those those core browser technologies and then adding you know, extra bonuses to it. You know, adding security and bookmark syncing and things. But yeah, again, full circle just keeps coming back to it. Interesting. I'm actually looking at the user agent for um, the Firefox mobile app that i'm using and it says uh, mozilla 5 iphone cpu iphone os 13 <laughs> like mac os 10 and then says apple webkit khtml yep. like gecko and gecko uh-huh. is the internal engine of Firefox. they have every so word that's in very there. interesting so your yeah pages won't block them or anything it's fascinating right it's just it's just throw a little bit of everything in there i ran a benchmark this morning on firefox um, on the iphone versus Safari on the iPhone, and they were almost the mm-hmm. same. I mean, there was it was so close that it's, I, I would consider them the same. And, and I know the technology is the same, but it is interesting seeing that, yeah, on the iPhone, it's 100% WebKit. It's fascinating, man. It's, it's fascinating how, when you think about it, kind of coming back to what I said at the beginning, um, these browsers are kind of like modern-day operating systems, if you will. You know, a computer without an operating system is pretty much useless, but it's also getting to the point where it's a computer without a web browser is pretty much useless as well. Um, And I found the process of setting up Firefox, switching everything over from Chrome to Firefox, definitely felt a lot like switching from operating system to operating system. Um, And it's it's different, but it's the same, you know. Um, But it's definitely our whole world, you know, in the modern modern digital landscape of yeah i agree the internet. these web browsers are so powerful like the chromebook for example the entire machine is built around using the browser and it's very successful um it's been years since i've been able to use a computer without internet and without a browser like i if, I, if i'm anywhere if i'm using the machine I, and i don't have internet it's it might as well be turned off i, I just am so crippled i can't use it for anything it's uh we have a huge reliance on these browsers and we yeah. take for granted how amazing they are because I've written terrible code and I've seen people write terrible uh, HTML and these browsers just, they never crash. They keep running. They, uh, they render it some way. They don't give up. Um, whereas, you know, regular compiled programs definitely would give up. Oh, most certainly. Most certainly. And, and, you know, we have Google to thank for, for that, honestly, by then making each tab a separate process and allowing one tab to crash and not affecting the rest of the system. Like that, that was huge. I remember when that happened, that was, um, it, it was, that was Absolutely. a really big deal. It used to be inside of, yeah. Like internet Explorer six didn't have tabs. That wasn't a thing. You had to open a new window. Um, and then once things did start to get tabs, such as Firefox, old Firefox and, I think Internet Explorer 7, yeah. Sometimes those tabs, one of them would crash and just take your whole browser down with it. You'd so lose TJ, everything. After we've talked about browsers a little bit, yeah. do you still feel like you really need those 
internet addresses to be on every search result? Or are you okay if it just has the name of the site? Um, I still want I still want the URLs for sure. Um, mainly that for for the sake of I don't like I I didn't like the idea of CompuServe back in the day. I didn't like AOL, where again you had keywords to get to things. I remember when the Lord of the Rings came out, you could use keyword Lord of the Rings, and it would just go sure. to LordoftheRings.com or whatever. Um, I don't like the idea of having a massive company not respecting that the internet isn't about them at the end of the day you can go anywhere else and i i don't need google to be able to go to you know apple.com microsoft.com and i feel like if we continue down this path google is going to continue to just get bigger and bigger um if you take out the idea of web addresses um it just makes me very uncomfortable i'm not a fan Hmm. of it i I still think we're going to see addresses there but i can i see your point all right, man. What did you, what's your pick of the week? So completely different topic. I actually have two picks of the week. I'm going to make the first one um, something we talked about earlier. And I think this could probably be both of our picks of the week was your book that yes. you suggested Most creative recent. selection um, about the creation of, yeah, the creation of, I think it was the, well, what Safari ended up being when Apple forked KHTML and started creating WebKit. Um, the creator of that um, wrote this book about that process, also the process of making the iPhone's keyboard. Um, fascinating book, really re- uh, well written. Um, and if anybody's interested in the, you know learning more about some of the history of web browsers, um, I highly recommend that. Um, my actual pick of the week. Well, first, Shane. No, are you I, a coffee I've drinker? Into a tea drinker. Coffee is, is just way too much work for me and makes my breath smell. Okay. That's that's a completely valid, valid argument. Um, do you like the taste, oh, no. though? Or are you not a fan taste. of the taste either? It, it, it's like beer to me. Like Socially, it, I would drink a beer, but I don't like the taste at all. And coffee's the same way. Like If I'm at the office and we have coffee, I'll drink it. But then I'll see people who are like really into coffee, and I don't under I don't get it. I just don't understand. So I'm, I have a feeling your pick of the week has something to do with coffee because I just uh, was vulnerable to you. It, it, <laughs> it does actually. <laughs> so it probably is not something you would really be interested in, but um, I, I have always been a coffee drinker for since I was like in my, in my teens. Um, I love coffee and I ran into a problem over the past few weekends. And that is normally I'll just go and I'll drink coffee at the office. I will wake up, go into the office, have my cup of coffee, check my email, maybe have a cup of coffee in the afternoon, you know, call it a day. Um, but on the weekends, I don't have a coffee maker. Hmm. I used to, but when I moved, I got rid of it because I wasn't, I wasn't using it that very much and it was just more stuff to move. So we ended up giving it away. Um, so now I don't have a coffee maker anymore. And I was very sad because I'd have to go to like Starbucks or I'd have to do, you know, some type of subpar coffee, you know, or very expensive coffee. And yeah, it made me sad. I don't really like Starbucks coffee that much. I'll drink it, but it tastes, you know, oftentimes they like burn the beans and whatnot. And it just tastes, it's just very bitter. So I started looking for a solution 
And um, this is kind of like you're, solu- you know, looking for a solution around, you know, a, a device that is, you know, like kind of like the surface that we were talking about. You know, it was it, it seems like this this solution is perfect so far. I'm going to have to keep on trying it and I'll follow up, you know, as as the episodes continue. But I found mm-hmm. this device called the AeroPress. And what it lets me do is only make one cup. I don't have to create a whole pot. Because that was one of the problems. I would end up making a full pot of coffee and either wasting it or drinking all of it. And neither of those seemed like an ideal situation. Um, I can make one pot of coffee. I mean, uh, one cup of coffee. And with the way that it's made, essentially, you put your coffee grounds in. You put some hot water in. You stir it. And then you, using pressure, because you're essentially, it's almost like a plunger, if you will. uses like a plunging type of device pressurizes this coffee through your beans and basically gives you an espresso shot at the end. Oh, really? But the coffee, it tastes so smooth. It's very, very, very good. It's not acidic. It's not bitter like normal coffee. It's just a very, it just like takes all the flavor that you're supposed to get and gives you that without any of the bitterness or like the acidic taste. Um, And so at the beginning of this show, I was actually drinking a cup of decaf coffee um, and it, it's amazing. So I have to, I had, you know, I've, I've been just raving about this to Jenny, who doesn't, doesn't give a crap because she doesn't drink coffee, but I love my AeroPress. It's a great device. And for 30 bucks to be able to have like a very good, like probably better than Starbucks quality I cup of coffee, it's definitely because worth I'm, it. What I'm used to, what I don't like about coffee is a lot of things that you mentioned, like the bitterness and the fact that it, it's been burning and sitting in, in that carafe for a while. So this is uh it's interesting. I'm looking at the picture right now. It looks like a a syringe or something that you're you're filling up. Yeah, it's like you fill up this cylinder of with your your grounds and with, you know, hot water and you just fill it up to like however much you want to make and then yeah, you have like this plunger device that you put on top of it and just slowly press it down over like 40 seconds and you're done out there there's an espresso shot and you just fill the rest up with like you know however much water you want and you're good to go um it's also very easy to clean um it it, i have it in and out of its box in less than two minutes and it's done um it's not like you now you have all these parts that you have to clean and whatnot nope that's it you just run one part over hot water and you're done that's pretty cool yeah live follow-up that uh, the book that we mentioned earlier, Creative book? Selection, it's from Ken oh. Tacienda, and you can get it on Amazon. But uh... okay, oh, TJ, sure. I'll put a link in the T- show notes. Today I went to Walgreens, and Walgreens Sir. is one of the few companies that I am able to go to and use my my phone to do Apple Pay. And so I, I'm in a world now where I only need my wallet. You know, if I only go to a few stores, I only need my wallet now for things like my ID, uh, my if I carrying my my car and, uh, insurance and registration with me, um, I would need it for that. But what's interesting is in Colorado, um, recently they've released um, the governor has helped release a new app called the My Colorado app. And this app, you you register it with the DMV and you get your driver's license on it. And they're working towards the ability to have your your car registration on there. So in the future, if I was pulled over, I would be able to show an officer a QR code on my phone. He could scan it with his phone, 
and then immediately have all of the information about me and my car. And then he can match it up with the tag, but I no longer, and this isn't, this isn't happening right now, but it, 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 we're on the path towards it. But I would not have to physically hand in my phone. He wouldn't have the liability of touching it, but he would be able to get that information as well as being able to use your ID at other places in the state. So until this goes nationwide, I still couldn't travel and do it, but I think it's a, a great future of being able to use this $1,000 device in your pocket with glass on the front and back instead of a very durable and time-tested plastic, very cheap plastic card. Now that I say it like that, maybe I should stick with the wallet, but I, I just, <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of being able to have all of this stuff on my phone. That is super cool. That's something that I miss. Like having lived in Colorado, I have to say like, man, I wish I could do something like this now. Okay, TJ, I think it's getting that time. And uh, I still don't know where my watch is. And you know what else? Podcasting is still hard. <laughs> Good night, TJ. Good night, man.